Well, uh, if you'd like to show your hands, uh, I'd invite you to do so. But I want to begin with a question. How many of you have been hurt, disappointed, or frustrated by the church? Uh, if you looked around at all, if you're on the balcony looking down, you can see that many of us have had this experience. I personally have had this experience. And while I think in some sense it's unfair to say that you've may, we've maybe been disappointed or hurt by a church, more than likely what we mean by that is that we've been hurt by people within a church that have led to disappointing experiences. Maybe grief has been caused by certain loss experiences within a church. I certainly have a number of those in my background and in my life. At the same time, ironically now, I serve as a pastor, obviously, of our church and an elder within our local church, and I also look back on the history of my time in full-time pastoral work over the last 11 to 12 years, and I see that I, too, have been now on the other side of things being the cause of, at times, hurt, pain, disappointment, and frustration by those who have come to be part of the church. I am certainly recognizing that there may even be people at this present time that are not part of a local church, potentially connected in some sense to decisions that I made as a leader of a local church. I had a bit of a reckoning with that actually about a year ago where I sent some messages and said to individuals, if you would, would you please forgive me? I recognize that I've made decisions in my past that are not God-honoring. And so as we think about these experiences that we've had, some of us, they're fresher than at other points in our life. Or if you now think about times maybe where you've been part of causing pain or disappointment in someone's life, we all need to have an understanding of what do we, what do, we do with those experiences? How do we figure out, how do we move forward? You know, certainly there's the option of just leaving the church altogether, and that certainly is a way that, that people go. And again, many times people leave because their experiences have been horrific. On the other side, you can maybe lean in, and sometimes we lean in for wrong motives, right? We lean in because we're trying to fix it ourselves, and so certainly there is a temptation. But what do we do? Well, this morning my hope is simply to help us understand a little bit about what this analogy of the groom and the bride, why it's given to us in the scriptures, why it's important, and how it can bring for us, I believe, a foundation by which that we should, I think, start this series on as we begin looking at the bride. And so today we're really starting with her groom. We are who we are because of who he ultimately is. And so with that, we're going to do a little bit of Bible uh, as we dig in here, a little bit of Old Testament, going to bring some foundation, and then at the end we'll have some practical considerations. But let's first look at the general theme in the scriptures of the church being in relationship with God and the church becoming the bride. So if you have your Bibles, Old Testament, Genesis 1, verse 26 to 27, page 1. It's always important to start at page 1 when you're doing any base-level foundational theology and teaching Genesis 1, verse 26 to 27, this is what we read. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what does God do? God creates human beings that are distinct and different than any other created thing. And they're distinct and different in that they are like God, made in his likeness, made in his image, yet they are not God. 
This is ground level, base level theology and understanding our relationship with God. But then as we look at the world and we consider relationship generally and healthy relationship that God has invited us towards, he creates us like him and that we are made in his image and likeness, yet we are different from them. In this sense, we are a complement. We're same yet different. He is God and you and I are not. Genesis 2 verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God then establishes marriage, describing it as one flesh. The coming together of two resulting in one, physically, emotionally, mentally, and familially. We can then jump forward, Ezekiel 16 verse 8. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God. You became mine. And so the story of the scriptures continues post the fall, post our rebellion against God, choosing to go in our own direction, with God continuing in his grace and love to pursue his creation, to pursue his image bearers. He pursues us, and he's speaking here in Ezekiel in intimate relational terms. I mean, look at the language. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Isaiah 54, verse 5, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth, he is called. And so here again we see in Isaiah the marriage analogy used to describe God, God's relationship with his people. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. And then when we move forward, we go to the Gospels, and Jesus continues to use this analogy, going so far as to point to himself as the bridegroom. Matthew 9, verse 15. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom, speaking of himself, is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Or how about Matthew 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Or John 3, verse 29. The one who has the bride, is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And then as we look to the epistles and to the letters, once again, this analogy has continued to be used. Just looking at 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Paul writing to the Corinthian church that we would be presented to Christ pure. And so as we see in these texts alone, and there are other texts that we will also explore this morning and others that I fail to mention, we see this analogy of the people of God being the bride and that Christ is our groom. Now with this analogy, I think it's helpful for us to understand, well, who is this groom? Is he good? Should we pursue him? Is he the groom that we should want to pursue? Well, how about Isaiah 62 verse 5? As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride so shall your God rejoice over you. 
I remember a season of my life where I was filled with shame and regret and frustration and disappointment. And in my Bible reading, this verse was brought to me by the Spirit. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And to illustrate this more, imagine the wedding day. You know, you have the groom standing. I always get the best seat, I really, as I'm standing and marrying individuals. And the bride is coming forward. And I think that movie, 27 Dresses with Katherine Heigl, turned it around where, I, I remember before that, a lot of people, we just look at the bride, right? But then in 27 Dresses, Katherine Heigl was like, you've got to look at the groom. And so now what I'll watch people do is like, they first look at the bride, but then they turn their heads and they look at the groom. And what's he doing? Beaming. Woo! He's pumped up. He's rejoicing over his bride. This is the analogy. That as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God rejoices over you. What does this tell us about our groom? Well, he is joyful and joy-filled. He rejoices over us. What else? The scriptures tell us he's gentle and lowly. He's gentle, meaning he's meek. He's humble. He's not harsh or, reacts or reactionary or easily exasperated. The, the understanding of lowly is that he's accessible. He's available. Or how about the fact that he's compassionate? Matthew 14, verse 14. He's empathetic and able to sympathize with us. He's eternally faithful and committed. He's tender-hearted. He's a defender and advocate. He's fully love and he's fully loving. He's understanding. He's a friend. He's generous. He's rich in mercy. He's radiant. He's creative. And he's sacrificial. He's pretty amazing. Is he not? I mean, imagine describing a potential suitor to a friend in this way. He almost sounds too good to be true, yet this is who the scriptures describe our groom as. So this is who he is, but then who are we? Now, contrary to what many of us would like to think, it is both the truth of the scriptures and if we're honest about our everyday lives. You and I, if he is the groom and we are the bride, we are an unfaithful bride. There's a book in the scriptures. It's called Hosea. It's a prophet. He's a prophet of God who is instructed and commanded by God to live in relationship with an unfaithful wife to ultimately illustrate Israel's unfaithfulness to God. Look with me at Hosea 1, verses 1, and then 2 to 3. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea. Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now this story already in the details of, of what I'm reading, is visceral. And it challenges our conditioned hearts that want to believe that we're simply victims of our sin, when in reality, if we're honest with ourselves, we per perpetrate and we initiate unfaithfulness repeatedly. Let's first take, as we look at the 20,000-foot view of the church in which we can collectively grieve manipulation, cover-ups, scandal, infidelity, pedophilia, 
sexual abuse. We think of Canada and the residential school system, abuses of power, greed, Christian nationalism, power imbalances, borderline cultish practices in the church, judgment and hatred. If we look at local churches at a 10,000-foot view, we can see insular leadership, false teaching, manipulation, and general wickedness, power pursuits, injustice, disunity, and church splits. And I know that there are those in our church who have had some of these stomach-turning experiences, and at times when the church should have been the place that drew them in, cast them out. But then if we're also honest in identifying that, yes, we collectively are the bride, you and I are also members and parts of that bride. And so we also have to look internally at ourselves and consider our own selfishness, our pride, our greed, our legalism, our license, our own self-forms of salvation, our lust, and even our failure to care for the least of these It reminds me of Jeremiah 2, verses 7 to 8, and also verse 2. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds, the leaders transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. And so I want to just simply invite us to be honest in recognizing that all of us are guilty. It's far too easy simply to point the finger at the big C church For those of us that consider ourselves followers of Jesus, we are the church. We are the bride of Christ, warts, mumps, and all. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his Seeking the Face of God, Nine Reflections on the Psalms, writes, You will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner. Because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We are all on very good terms with ourselves and we can always put up a very good case for ourselves. Even if we try to make ourselves feel that we are sinners, we will never do it. There is only one way to know that we are sinners and that is to have some dim, glimmering conception of God. So think again, who is the groom? I was meeting with uh, the new pastor of Crestwick this week, extremely encouraged by our time together. His name's RJ, and he said, we are a very ugly fiancé, as we were talking about the church. And we are the ones who commit adultery. If this is the language of the scriptures, that we are the bride and he is the groom, How is then our experience to be understood as we turn and walk away adultery? And tragically, I know that there are individuals in this church that through either their family or themselves have experienced the pain of that sort of experience. And yet, we read this in Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. I've removed the first part that many of us think about when we read this verse and simply started with what Christ has done. 
And so what has Christ done? Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing and that so that she might be holy and without blemish. What has Christ done? He's pursued us. He's given himself up for us. He's sanctified us, cleansed us, and made us beautiful. This is what he has done, but what about what he is doing? If we go to Hosea verse 3, verses 1 to 5, look what the Lord then instructs Hosea to do. He says, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Fill in the blank. You're maybe not running after cakes of raisins, but fill in the blank of the thing that you're running after. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a, hor- and a homer and a lethesh of barley. This speaks to the cost. She is already his, but yet he pays out money to win her and have her back. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. Shall I also be to you. And so what is Christ doing even now? He's continually pursuing us and drawing us back. He stands by us no matter what, never leaving nor forsaking us. And we are also waiting for what he is going to do. Revelation 19, verses 7 to 8. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And then Revelation 21, verse 2, and also verse 9. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. This is the promise. This is our future in that Christ is going to return for his bride, ridding her completely of her imperfections and blemishes and to ultimately bring justice for himself and for her. Incredible. Who he is, who we are, what he has done, is doing, and is going to do. And so let's consider just simply what our response can be. Firstly, we talked about this last week as we were talking about baptism. Repentance. Changing our minds. Walking in the other direction turning repeatedly away from ourself, from our insular thinking, and turning instead to him and his kingdom and his desires for us. Turning yet again and saying, I want to trust you. Which leads us to surrender and faith as we continue to understand who he is, who we are. 
He invites us to surrender and faith. You know, you and I do not need to be perfect. Why? Because he was perfect and is perfect for us. We then ought to respond in worship. We ultimately exist then as a church to point to him, our groom. And we exist as the big C church to make Jesus known and his gospel of good news. Of how good, how gracious, how incredible, how tender-hearted he is. And then this should also bring humility Because we understand as we consider what he's done, is doing, and is going to do, we can understand that we live on this side of Christ's resurrection, that he's declared us righteous before God, justified, sanctified ultimately, and yet we are waiting for him to return. And so what this can and should do is that we should approach the church realistically and honestly saying it's going to be broken still. There are going to be points of pain. Now, this is in no way a reason to overlook it. We can and should seek justice as we wait for Christ's return. This simply means that we need to be humble and not surprised and therefore lose faith, I would hope and trust, in the church entirely. Because the church is not perfect. And so let me just say, if, if you are part of this church and you've come to be part of it because in some sense we've presented it to you as being like this great alternative option of this missional church that's doing things the right way, we fail, we mess up. That's a part of who we are as God's bride. So what we need to do increasingly is point to Jesus. And we need to be humble Some practical considerations for the church broadly. As I said, we exist as the church to, to point to Jesus. The bride exists ultimately to make the groom known. And so a local church, regardless of where it is, regardless of the model it follows, regardless of what it's about, should be doing this ultimately to make the groom known. There should never be a question in a local church of who's this about? It's about Jesus. It's about who he is. It's about what he's done. It's about who we are then as a result and what he then invites us to go and to do. And so while the culture will change around us, the message of the gospel does not. And though it might mean that we communicate it in different ways, the message stays the same as we continue to pursue Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I have no doubt knowing that in a group of this size, you watching online, if you're joining us today, that you've been deeply wounded and hurt. For what it's worth, I want to apologize for leadership. I recognize that how could I ever apologize for all church leadership that you've ever been part of, but for what it's worth, please accept my apology. Leaders have done, and I have done historically as well, a terrible job of being honest. And so, I just simply want to invite us, by God's Spirit, 
that as he invites us to love him and to love others, that it, that includes, let's love also the church. That part of loving God is also loving his people. And sometimes that steps of faith, right? That's what this is. It's stepping in faith and in doubt, but pursuing Christ and doing that together. And so as we begin this journey together in this series, I want to invite all of us to just continue to consider this analogy of the bride and continue to be drawn back to the one who's cleansed us, who sanctified us, who continues to pursue us no matter what. He is that good.